Today, we're going to talk about the Sabbath. Thank you to Beverly Phillips for dovetailing the children's story right along with what we're going to talk about today. And interestingly enough, the Sabbath school lesson that I taught this morning was related to this as well. So it's like the Holy Spirit is kind of guiding us all together. Amen? <laughs> so we're talking about the Sabbath. But we're not talking so much about like what it is and why it's important and how to keep it. Those are all very important things to know. So if anyone here is unclear about those things, then my recommendation is to make sure to attend, I believe it's tonight's meeting with Evangelist Ryan Day, and we can learn all about the nuts and bolts of the Sabbath day. Today, this morning, I want to go uh, from a different perspective and to explore the transformational power of this day that we aim to keep holy. Because I truly do believe in my heart that the Sabbath day is all by itself, in and of itself, a powerful tool from God. And I have found in my own life and in the lives of many who I've spoken to over the years that simply connecting to the day that the Lord has blessed can bring a believer into close fellowship with God. And I believe it is supernatural. I don't use that word lightly, but I do believe what I'm talking about is a supernatural thing. And if we submit to it, it does in fact have transformational power. And so I'll start with the idea that the worst possible thing that we can do when relating to keeping the Sabbath is to limit keeping the Sabbath to what happens from 9.30 in the morning until 1 o'clock or so on a Saturday. You get what I'm saying? When we limit it to church attendance, then we kind of miss the whole point. We, we maybe get to church on time, we sit still and we listen for a few hours, and then we sing a few songs and go home. Problem solved, right? I've kept the Sabbath. But I'm telling you, that's not, not how to get what I'm going to talk about this morning. If that limited idea of the Sabbath is our entire conception of it, we're not going to have the right kind of relationship to it or to its Lord, Jesus Christ, that's going to carry us through the time of trouble that is coming. And nor will we ever have the experience that God promises us regarding the Sabbath in Isaiah chapter 58 and verse 14, that that delighting of ourselves in the Lord and riding on the high hills of the earth and receiving the heritage of Jacob the father. These kinds of things will be lost to us if we just kind of think, I'll show up for Sabbath school, I'll sing a few songs, I'll go home, and that's it, I've kept Sabbath. You understand? So to that end, let me testify a little bit to you. This is going to be more or less a testimony sermon of myself and, and somebody else as well. So let's begin. My name is Stephen, and I am a pretty angry guy. This is going to be a bit of a confessional testimony as well. I am a, I'm a pretty angry guy, and I know that at least some of you out there can relate to what that means and how that feels and the difficulty in dealing with that. This has been the thorn in my side, so to speak to borrow a phrase, right? For as long as I have memories, this has been true. Uh, my parents divorced when I was young and the extenuating circumstances definitely exacerbated that problem for me. 
but it did not invent the problem. It seems to me that God built me to be a malcontent. What did not help the matter was that I was raised on the misguided fluff of the 1980s with all of its promises that I was in fact free to be me and I was capable of and deserving of whatever I could set my imagination to accomplish. You know, that, that mentality was not quite the everybody gets a trophy catastrophe that we have today, but it was the foundations of that, you know? And I was raised on that and I bought into it for a long time. And so anyway, as I grew older and my life turned increasingly away from my vision of what it should have been, that malcontent inside of me just grew and grew and grew and grew. And so I suffered some pretty heavy trauma when I was 15 years old, and following that, I, I became kind of a professional malcontent, you know? My entire worldview became centered and focused on my own self because I, I kind of felt so strongly by that point in time that the entire world was my enemy, and if I was going to be happy, it was only going to be happy. I was only going to be happy through my own doings, you know? The world had done nothing but hurt me. And have you ever heard the idea that the difference between expectation and realization is frustration? Right? We have an expectation of what should be. Then along comes the realization of what actually is. And the difference between what I expected and what I realized is frustration. And I had a whole lot of frustration. So I had begun writing troubling and violent short fiction when I was in the eighth grade. My writings explored just about every single way that my twisted imagination could conceive of to destroy and otherwise degrade life. And it was ultimately because I felt such hatred for myself that the only way I knew how to get rid of that was to unleash it upon the characters in my stories. I went to college, I studied filmmaking, and as such, I then adopted a whole brand new medium to fill with violence and anger. And every single one of the films that I made at that time involved exactly what you would think they would involve, the, de the degradation and destruction of life in one form or another. And so now just kind of imagine, I'm setting the stage for you here. Imagine me with all of that, walking through life filled with this anger and venting it through fictional violence in written and motion picture form. But now, on top of that, I'm surrounded by 8 to 13 million people every single day because I went to school in New York City where there are 8 to 13 million people on any given day. Do you think that was a recipe for good or a recipe for bad? Well, to illustrate, among other things that I could elaborate on, but just as an illustration, if I happened to be running late somewhere, and I was always running late somewhere because I was annoyed if I showed up before you did and I had to wait for you, so I was always the last person to arrive. So if I happened to be running late somewhere, then my imagination would come up with ways to just unleash the wrath of hell 
on anyone who happened to be in my way. If I'm going down into the subway to get the train to get where I'm going, and then I'm in danger of missing the train because there's several hundred people in front of me, then I would envision like a noose descending from the sky to just pluck these people off of the planet for the simple crime of being in my way. After the September 11th terror attacks, I just about fell apart. I went the most amount of numb that I have ever had the misfortune of experiencing. Uh, when I was not filled with total rage, I was bent on chasing pleasure any way that I could. And among other things, I ended up following a band for two years, and I looked I really tried to bring a picture of that for you that kind of gets to the heart of what that experience was, but I couldn't find it. Maybe the Lord took it away from me. I don't know. But in any case, their shows, which I went to once a week for two years, and visits with my girlfriend at the time, who's now my wife, praise the Lord, those are really the only things that chased away the numbness and the desperation that I carried around with me all the time. And this picture that I'm painting for you was my mindset more or less, when God crashed into me in my 20s. See, by that time, I had been living with this tendency to destroy people, either fictionally or even occasionally in the real world. Um, and I'd been living with that for, for literally half my life by that point. The anger, pretty much my whole life, but it's kind of intense manifestations for literally half my life by that point. And I don't want to tell you that I magically overcame this anger problem when I learned the Bible. Um, the process of sanctification did begin, and the thorn in my side did diminish, and it changed shape, but it remained. When you, when you suffer that way, you know, the brain gets damaged. For long enough, it gets damaged. And even when even when that brain damage would get the best of me and that darkness would revisit me, even then it wasn't the same as it had been. It was just like, it was weakness now. <laughs> weakness because of brain damage and because of imperfection, but not sociopathic premeditation like it had been for, for all of my young adulthood. So in other words, God had crawled into my heart and he had changed me, little by little. And the process, the specific mechanism by which he chose to do this was the Sabbath day. Please consider that the fourth commandment begins by saying, remember the Sabbath day. Remember. It's the only commandment that begins with the word remember, indicating that it points to something in the past. In other words, it was not invented or even revealed at Mount Sinai, but it comes from earlier than that. And I think this is not a surprise to many of us here, but it comes from Genesis chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. The heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. So Sabbath is inherently tied to the concept of creation. And the earth, as we know, has never been without a witness to God's holy day. But I had a disconnect 
The disconnect for me was, despite how I responded so very powerfully to the concept of the Sabbath, as I learned it from the Bible, at the time, I didn't really believe in creation. And why would I? I was raised in the public schools. I was taught by the seventh grade that life evolved up from nothing over endless eons of time, and on top of that, that anyone who believed differently than that was simply ignorant of science and reality. And so this all had a powerful effect on me, as you can imagine. And uh, I lived with an anxiety from my youth. Anxiety and anger are not unrelated. They're in the same family, you know. And that anxiety was in part out of helplessness of not knowing how we got here or why we were here or what the purpose of my life was. And so then here comes seventh grade science class, and it offered me a solution to all of those questions. Seventh grade science gave me evolution. The proof, so to speak, of how we got here. And I had been so desperately looking for some kind of proof that I actually felt strangely at peace with the knowledge that I was just some sort of highly evolved ape. I even went so far as to feel thankful that I lived in this enlightened modern age without its need to rest on fairy tales to answer these kinds of questions, you know? And I then spent more than the next 10 years, more than the next decade, actually judging people based on their ideas of the origins of human life. So as you can imagine, coming to a position of faith regarding creation took some time for me. It took some time and effort, for that matter. One of the things that helped me was its irreplaceable position in the perfect narrative of the Bible. My brain is narratively oriented, right? I have a writer's brain, a storyteller's brain, and so if something's a good story, I want to pay attention. And the Bible's the best story in the whole wide world, amen? So you can't really honestly absorb the story of the Bible without creation. And even as I was struggling with it, I was realizing that was true. You can't really believe it and disbelieve creation. So okay, okay, okay. That helped. But the thing that helped the most was the Sabbath. The Sabbath, all by itself, absent of creation, just the concept of Sabbath was incredibly logical to me. I accepted it immediately because the Scripture was so clear. The Scripture is unambiguous as to what it says and what it means. And as soon as I had a clear understanding of how to keep the day, I began to keep the day. A solid year before I joined the church and started keeping it in church, right? I was not willing to give up the Sabbath. It changed me immediately and for the better, and it was just so objectively good that I knew that was what I was going to do for the rest of time, which means that I had to come to terms with creation. How could I believe the Sabbath but disbelieve creation? And so, even though my journey towards biblical creation was long, and it was studious, and it was difficult, 
And I do mean studious, man. I studied this for a long time. The Sabbath was an anchor for me through that entire ordeal. As I would be knocked one way or another and, you know, my faith would be shaken here and there. And it was kind of a mess for a while, but every seven days, here comes the Sabbath as an anchor. And the Sabbath would tell me that the journey I was on was going to be worth it. Creation, the Sabbath told me creation was worth it. Just keep studying. Just keep moving forward. Just keep the faith and God will do it for you. God will reveal himself. God will show you. So eventually, when I could honestly say that my belief in origins was now firmly rooted in creation, that all by itself had an impact on me. Creation had an impact on me. It changed me from within just like the gospel is supposed to. And suddenly, I had a much harder time hating everybody. Now, if you've not suffered from anger problems, that may not seem like a big deal, but oh my goodness, that was a big deal for me. I had a much harder time hating people I could not imagine strangers' demise anymore simply because the stranger was in my way, you know? I couldn't do that anymore. Now the Lord was telling me that stranger is my brother or is my sister. That stranger is a child of Adam, a relative of mine, as distant a relative as it may be. That person who was in my way was now family to me. And as such, people were not to be used by me anymore, but now were to be served by me. It was a totally radical change in my whole perspective on life. The Sabbath day connected me to the Creator God in such a powerful and profound way that my entire outlook on life changed. I began to figure out a way to be defined by something other than my anger and my superiority over others, right? And my frustration that no one else seemed to recognize that superiority. <laughs> I'm glad at least some part, somebody thought that was humorous. I appreciate that. The Sabbath helped me to learn to be defined by Jesus Christ. The Sabbath helped me to feel connected to my fellow human beings. No matter how different you may look from me, no matter how different you may behave from me, or how far away you may live, right? I feel a connection to people on the other side of the planet who I will never meet because we're all family. The simple action of honoring the Sabbath turned my heart towards Jesus. And it began the process of manifesting him in me. It's part of why I picked our scripture for today. Isaiah 56, 1 and 2. Thus says the Lord, keep justice and do righteousness. For soon my salvation will come and my righteousness will be revealed. Blessed is the man who does this and the son of man who holds it fast. Who keeps the Sabbath, not profaning it. And keeps his hand from doing any evil. See, these verses here liken honoring the Sabbath or not defiling it so to speak, right? But 
keeping it in the right way, likens that to justice and to righteousness and even a knowledge of salvation. And the Sabbath unites all of mankind under the banner of the Lord's weekly blessing. As it goes on to say in verse 3, Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say that the Lord will surely separate me from his people. And let not the eunuch say, Behold, I am a dry tree. So sons of the foreigner, what would that mean for us? All right, the former heathens, so to speak. The converts to Adventism, like myself. We have a right to the Sabbath also. And you are not to make us feel separated from you just because we may not be as far along as you on the road of sanctification. We, as a body, are supposed to look for ways to allow people to join us, not look for ways to deny them that privilege. And so, okay, that's sons of the foreigner. What about the eunuchs? Well, that would be people living with an unnatural body, right? Historically, eunuchs are um, incomplete men, to, to, to be polite, right? Well, do we have people living with unnatural bodies today? I mean, increasingly so, right? Some men on purpose today make themselves eunuchs, and then our society around them cheers them on. Yay, good for you. But what has God provided that unites humanity more powerfully than our tendencies to mutilate and otherwise disrespect our bodies? What has God provided that unites us more powerfully than the walls we build up between each other to divide, which unites us across our ethnic divisions and conversion status? Do you see what God gave us? He gave us the Sabbath day. No matter what our ethnic or religious background, no matter what we have done to our bodies, the Lord welcomes us to participate in his Sabbath blessing. Verse 4 goes on. For thus says the Lord to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose the things that please me and hold fast my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it, and holds fast my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. How many of you have connected the dots before to realize that Jesus quotes this when he's cleansing the temple, right? but did you ever realize he's quoting a Sabbath passage when he does that? One of my biggest difficulties, one of my biggest difficulties with organized religion, Adventism in particular, since that's my faith now, but it was not always, and I had this same problem everywhere. One of my biggest problems has always been that we don't seem to see eye to eye with God on this in many cases. 
Now, again, I'm making a general statement, not one specific to this congregation. Don't hear me wrong here. But in general, sometimes we seem to go out of our way to create walls and boundaries between us and them. Some of us seem to even define our Christianity by what we are not or what we disapprove of rather than what we are, which is children of God. But you see, my Adventist experience, my entire real experience with God was about the opposite. It was about tearing down walls and fostering love and acceptance and preaching the beauties of the kingdom of heaven like Christ did, not preaching discouragement about getting there like the devil does. That was, that was the biggest thing for me. I, I can't stress this enough. God taught me how to love you. <laughs> the scripture passage concludes in verse 8. The Lord God who gathers the outcasts of Israel declares, I will gather yet others to him besides those already gathered. The Lord is in the business of gathering together not only Israel and its outcasts, but others besides. He's after everybody. The Lord does not look at the church as it stands only with happiness at what he has gathered already, but more so with longing for those who have yet to be gathered to him still. Like Sam, for instance, not his real name. My friend Kevin and I met Sam when we were working a Sacramento neighborhood up north, going door to door doing survey work and offering Bible studies. Sam, at the time, was living with his nine-year-old autistic son who was largely nonverbal. He also was living with his non-practicing Mormon baby mama, the mother of the child, to whom he was not married. And they all three of them lived together at the woman's parents' home with the parents. You wrapping your mind around that situation yet? <laughs> Sam was living with his girlfriend's parents who hated him. And he was living with an illegitimate, so to speak, autistic son. And the parents blamed him for the son being autistic because on top of all of that, he was also an alcoholic. Now, I don't know that there's any causal relationship between alcohol and autism, but in their minds, clearly there was. And they blamed every misfortune on him and his alcoholism. Sam was miserable, as you may imagine. He got no respect in that home. He was all but banished to the garage of that home, which he had stewardship over as, I believe, as a means of getting him out of the house because they didn't want him in the house. The, gar the garage was a chaotic mess. In other words, it was an accurate represent representation of his life as a whole. Well, when Kevin and I met Sam, he seemed interested in learning from the Bible, praise the Lord, until he wasn't so interested. You know, he kept saying that he was going to make an appointment to study with us, but then he kept on not actually doing it. Every time we would visit him, he had another excuse and another and another. And finally, after weeks of pursuing this man, he finally relented, and we agreed to meet on a Wednesday evening. And so Kevin and I were very excited. 
we showed up on Wednesday night to preach the gospel, and Sam was drunk. Like, really, really drunk. Now, to his credit, he was a friendly drunk. And he actually did go through the motions of getting out his Bible and sitting down to learn and pretending he was going to do this, but we all realized quickly that was not going to work because you may know that drunk people don't listen very well. So he eventually apologized, and we kind of called it quits, and he asked us to come back on Saturday morning. Now, we objected. We said, we don't offer studies Saturday morning. That's when we go to church. But he would not take no for an answer. He insisted. He said that that day at that time would be the only time that he wouldn't be drunk. So we said, okay, all right. We prayed about it, and we scheduled him early in the morning on Saturday so that we could then go to church afterwards. Friend, Sam was stone cold sober when we showed up on Saturday morning. Every other time, every other day, he would shine us on and, you know, blow us off and make some excuse and prioritize alcohol. But on Saturday morning, he was present, he was alert, and he was ready to learn about God. And he did not even realize that it was the Sabbath day. We hadn't shared that with him yet by this point. It was only later that we could do that. Sam responded to God's Sabbath blessings without even realizing what he was doing. And within a few studies, wouldn't you know it, even the garage was put in order. He had found clarity in the gospel, and the Holy Spirit had moved him to organize that garage as kind of a microcosm of his life as a whole. Now, I have other stories I could share, too. I have actually a fair number of these kinds of stories. Because every time, it seems to me, that once a person connects to the Sabbath, all the other things about God will just flow naturally and easily from that. It's, I, I liken it to a string of dominoes, and the Sabbath is the first one. And if you knock it down, it will just knock all the rest down too. And that's, that's been my experience. The holy day, the special time with God, holds a person captive to Jesus Christ and works on his heart to transform from the inside out. And so what is my point in all of this? My point is that Sabbath is a tremendous blessing that we can easily but should not take for granted. We can easily take it for granted, but we should not because it is a powerful blessing directly from heaven that can change the heart of the angriest, least tolerant person around and also break through the haze of alcohol and other maladies to reveal Christ to the sinner. How many of us are totally guilty of making Sabbath all about us? About what we do or don't do? About church attendance and nothing more than that? I mean, how many of us are sitting on this divine connection with God, but acting like Israel of old in Amos 8, verse 5, saying, when will the new moon be over that we may sell grain? When will the Sabbath be over so we can offer wheat for sale, right? When will this day be over so we can get back to regular life? 
How many more important things are there to do besides just go to worship on Sabbath morning? Ooh, I hope this sermon is short today so I can get home and watch the game. Ooh, did I step on too many of your toes with that? What's so important about this day anyway? Is it really any different than Sunday, really? Who even cares? How many of us have some version of this kind of mentality? Brothers and sisters, we have to care. We have to. The Lord tells us, right in the midst of his exposition on the Sabbath and its promises in Isaiah 58, he tells us that we are the repairers of the breach. We have a job to do relating to the Sabbath. We are not only commissioned with demonstrating to a fallen world about the blessings of the Sabbath, but by extension, we are also to repair the breach between God and man by pointing people to the Sabbath day and its Lord, Jesus Christ, the true mediator between God and man. We are to show the wicked that we are all siblings, sons and daughters of Adam. We are to connect the drunken with the power that can help them be sober and straighten out their lives. We are to worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water, as it says in the first angel's message with Sabbath language. That's what we are to do because we are Seventh-day Adventists. Amen? We stand for many things. Many things. But there is none more prominent than the seventh day after which we are named. I mean, that's the name that we have taken for ourselves. It's right there in our identity. And we're told by the spirit of prophecy that in the time of trouble to come, the worshipers of God will be especially distinguished by their regard for the fourth commandment, since this is the sign of God's creative power and the witness to his claim upon man's reverence and homage. The wicked will be distinguished by their efforts to tear down the Creator's memorial and to exalt the institution of Rome. In the issue of the conflict, all Christendom will be divided into two great classes, those who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus, and those who worship the beast and his image and receive his mark. That's, uh, I realize I don't have the volume, but that's volume 9. Testimonies, volume 9, page 16. <clears throat> and so Sabbath is the key to everything that the Lord is calling us to do in these last days. At least it seems... Nice and plainly that way to me. Let us recommit to it. Find our joy in it. And learn how to praise and exalt the Lord Jesus Christ through it. Amen? And I'm going to appeal to every one of us here today to leave here covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. To leave here in a loving and saving relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, acknowledging him not only as the Savior in general, but your personal Savior for you. That's my appeal to you today. Don't go home without Jesus. And there are lots of folks, maybe even you, who have an idea you want to follow Jesus, but you don't exactly know how. 
And uh, lots of folks can even feel intimidated to begin to following Jesus without a clear knowledge of how, uh, especially in an environment where there's a whole lot of ideas as to how, right? But my recommendation to anyone wondering is to connect to Christ through his holy day, the seventh-day Sabbath. Are we a church of Sabbath keepers, friends? Ooh, that was a weak amen. I thought that would be like the, the most robust amen of the morning. Let's try that again. Are we a church of Sabbath keepers, friends? Amen. Yeah, amen indeed. Are you willing to keep the Sabbath day holy? Or, if you're already in the habit, are you willing to continue to keep the seventh day holy? Amen. That's really my prayer for you, for me, for all of us. We have a work to do in this world. The world is dying. The, world, the Lord is coming soon. We're running out of time to do this. Let's use this blessing that comes to us wherever we are in the whole wide world at the same time every week. The only blessing that actually chases us. The blessing for which we can do nothing to earn because the whole concept is resting. So if we do something, the blessing goes away. Right? Let us connect to this blessing that God gave us and stand firmly on the rock of Jesus Christ as we do it. Let's transform this world for Jesus through this weekly blessing he gives us. Amen? Amen. Now let's stand together. We're going to sing our closing song. It's a hymn of consecration, I hope. Let us declare to the Lord that we are wholly His as we sing the song, Holy Thine.
Our loving Father in heaven, we give you thanks and praise that you are wise enough to recognize that we need a Sabbath day. And we thank you from the bottom of our hearts for choosing us to reveal yourself and your day to us and trusting us that we would connect to it rightly and connect to the Lord Jesus Christ through it rightly. Bless us, we pray. We know our faith is imperfect. We know that uh, there is a large chasm between us and you. So please give us your Holy Spirit. Minister to us with the words of Jesus and build our faith. Transform us from the inside out and give us the blessing that you, hmm, you always give us the blessing. Lord, consecrate our hearts to receive the blessing that you are pouring out to us each and every week so faithfully. We ask this expecting the blessing, asking this in the name of Jesus. Amen. My friends, be strong and courageous. Do not be terrified. Do not be discouraged. For the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. God bless you in the week to come. Oh, it's just a benediction. It's just a blessing to go home with. That's all. <laughs>
Thank you. 